Thanks for tuning in. I'm Renee. And I'm Shelby. And you're listening to The Creepy Burrito. jump into today's episode we want to tell you guys about some reviews we got our first review is on itunes from tamitha lynette she gave us five stars entitled madly deeply love she had said funny smart intriguing my new favorite indulgence love me some creepy burrito so saucy hell yeah we're saucy tamitha lynette And we're going to keep it saucy. Our next sweet-ass review comes from Sabrina. She says, This podcast is a perfect mix of spooky theories and the facts behind them, with just the right amount of friendly banter to keep it spicy. Well, Sabrina, thank you. We're lucky to have a spicy listener like you. So spicy. So much sauce, so much spice. I love it. All right. Are you still going? <laughs> so, Shelby. Oh. What's scarier than a serial killer? What? One that's never caught. Ooh. Which is exactly what we will be talking about today. From the years of 1934 to 1938, an unknown serial killer terrorized the city of Cleveland, Ohio, and completely baffled law enforcement. This serial killer had left at least 12, but speculated upwards of 20 people dead. And he didn't just kill them dead. He uh, decapitated them and dismembered them dead. The bodies always ended up the same way, beheaded and dismembered, leaving only their torso to be found. In some cases, the decapitated head would be found elsewhere, but most times wouldn't be found at all. These grisly crimes led the serial killer to be dubbed as the Cleveland Torso Murderer, otherwise known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. So let's talk about Kingsbury Run for a little bit. Kingsbury Run is an area of land on the southeast side of Cleveland, Ohio, nestled on the banks of the Cuyahoga River. But back in the 1930s, it was a dark and dangerous place. The area was used as a landfill and was also a shantytown, otherwise known as Hobo Jungle. It was populated by the poor, homeless, transients, and those hit hardest by the Great Depression. And not too far away was an area known as the Roaring Third, which was home to many of the city's bars, brothels, and gambling houses. Although it was a refuge for some of these people residing in Kingsbury Run, it was often filled for problems with the authorities. And this is exactly where our killer strategically and very deliberately preyed on all of his victims. All victims were either working poor, drifters, or homeless. The killer also did not show a gender preference towards his victims. He killed both men and women. No one was safe. Even though during this time, the city was improving economically, the gruesome crimes terrified the community. It all started on September 5th, 1934. A young man was searching the banks of Lake Erie for driftwood when he noticed something bobbing in the water. At first, he thought it was just a tree trunk, but 
Under further inspection, it turned out to be something much more sinister. He found the headless, limbless, lower half of a torso of a woman, her legs amputated at the knees. The Cuyahoga County Coroner, A.J. Pierce, noted that her body had been treated or preserved with some kind of chemical that had given the skin a red leathery appearance, and it was estimated that her body was in the water for about three to four months, though with the preservative treatment, it was difficult to say for certain. The remainder of her body parts were never located, and unfortunately, with so little of the woman's body found, she was never identified. She was dubbed the Lady of the Lake and soon forgotten. Unfortunately, it wasn't until two years later that the detectives noticed that she fit almost perfectly into the torso murder case and was included in the official killing total after victims number one and two were already found. Thus, she became victim number zero. Things were quiet for a year and no more torsos were found. Until September 23rd, 1935, over a year later, two young boys were playing catch on top of an embankment on Kingsbury Run, known as Jackass Hill. <laughs> oh, that's cute. One of the boys uh, tossed a ball a little too hard, and they had to go chase it down the hill, following it into the weeds where it had disappeared. And as you can imagine, the shock these poor boys received when they found a body instead of their ball. In the bushes lay a decapitated body of a man, nude except for his socks. When the police arrived, their immediate reaction was to start to try to look for the head. And instead of finding the head, they found a second body oh. about 30 feet away, which was also decapitated. The police continued searching and eventually found both heads. The head of the first victim was partially buried about 20 feet away from his body, and the head of the second victim was about 75 feet away, also partially buried. During their search, they also found a torch and a metal bucket with an oily substance that had been mixed with blood left on the rim. Besides the obvious similarities of both bodies being decapitated, they also found that both men had their penises removed, and both bodies appeared to have been drained of all blood and cleaned before being dumped. It was determined that the cause of death to both victims was attributed to death by decapitation, hemorrhage, and shock, meaning the victims would have been alive when they were decapitated. Yeah. However, there were also some differences. They found that the first body had rope burns on the wrists and that the second body's skin had hardened and was discolored. After further examination, it was determined that the second victim's body was covered with oil and lit on fire, but it was only sufficient enough to just scorch the skin and not burn the body entirely. The first victim was a white male with blue-gray eyes and brown hair. Height was about 5'11", and weighed about 150 pounds. He seemed to be in his 20s, and was presumed to have been dead for two to three days before being found. The second victim was also a white male with dark brown hair. He was 5'6", 165 pounds, and seemed to be in his 40s. It was clear that the second victim had been lying in the bushes quite a while longer than the first, Initially, it was thought that the second victim had only been dead for seven to ten days. However, it was later revised to three to four weeks. The first victim's body was eventually identified by fingerprints to be 28-year-old Edward Andrassy. However, the second victim remained unidentified. 
Andrassi had worked as an orderly in a psychiatric ward in Cleveland City Hospital, but at the time of his death, he had no job or no visible means of support. He also had an arrest record, was rumored to be a homosexual, and hung around the Roaring Third quite often. He was known for his drinking, frequently getting into fights, and even having run-ins with the mob. Police knew him as a snotty punk, and even his own father admitted that he hung around people of questionable character. Autopsy reports came back showing that the head and limbs were cleanly severed from the body. This led investigators to believe that the killer had a strong medical background, which makes sense. We're talking 1930s here. Mm -hmm. There's no Google. There's no Amazon where you can order medical books. Someone who can cleanly sever limbs and other extremities had to have had some sort of medical training at that time. They also figured the killer was very strong because... Believe it or not, cutting off limbs and other body parts is pretty strenuous. But even with this information, police had a hard time tracking down anyone who could potentially be a suspect. Having quite literally nothing else to go on and no other evidence, police figured that both victims probably knew one another and were likely killed by the same person, and the case went cold. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, police, for whatever reason, didn't tie these two murders to the earlier discovery of the Lady of the Lake, which is kind of understandable. During this time, investigators usually didn't make connections between individual crimes like this. Serial killings were practically unheard of. In fact, the term serial killer wouldn't even be coined for another 30 years after this event. Up until then, they were just called mass murderers. In the 1930s, it wasn't protocol for law enforcement to look into the motivations and behaviors of serial killers. The FBI's Behavioral Science Unit wasn't even established until 1972. Prior to then, it was typically assumed that someone would commit a murder out of either vengeance or violence. No one ever gave a second thought to the idea that someone might just kill for pleasure. They quite literally had no idea what they were dealing with. In 1935, the mayor of Cleveland decided to hire Elliot Ness as the city's safety director. Now, if you're a big true crime fan, you will know who Elliot Ness is. But if you aren't, which you should be, I'll give you a little background. Elliot Ness was the leader of a famous team of law enforcement agents in Chicago, Illinois. They were named the Untouchables, and they had worked to take down Al Capone. The people of Cleveland believed that his savviness as a detective would bring crime in the city to a halt, which it did. Ness made headlines in the local press almost daily for cleaning up the corruption in the police force, professionalizing and modernizing police academy training, stopping juvenile delinquency, improving traffic safety, and also declaring war on the mob. It seemed that the people of Cleveland could rest easy with someone like Ness on their side. On January 26, 1936, a woman was outside walking early one morning when she came across two half-bushel baskets. They seemed to be packaged with what she assumed were hams. However, if you haven't already guessed it, mm. they definitely weren't hams. Inside the baskets were human body parts wrapped in newspaper. Police rushed to the scene and, upon searching, found several more body parts stuffed into two burlap sacks nearby. By February 7th, everything except for the head was recovered. Some body parts were found in a vacant lot, and others were found scattered against a fence behind a vacant house. They also found a pair of white cotton underwear wrapped in newspapers. Among these body parts was a female torso. After examining the torso, Coroner Pierce determined that she had been dead for about two to four days, the cause of death to be decapitation, and the cuts again were clean and very precise. 
just like the first two murders. However, for some reason, the killer decided to wait until rigor mortis set in before dismembering the rest of this body. Police were able to identify this body as well via her fingerprints as local woman named Florence, or Flo, Palillo. She was 42 years old and worked in the Roaring Third as a barmaid and had previously been arrested on several occasions for prostitution. Police followed up on any forensic evidence that they could find and interviewed several shady characters in Flo's life, but they all turned up dead ends, especially when none of the potential suspects had any sort of medical training. The department was split between theories. Some people thought that this killing and the two men found the previous year were related, the similarities being all too coincidental. However, others believe that there was no way that they could be related. Victims number one and two were male, while victim number three was a female, leading them to believe that they couldn't be related because they weren't within the same victim profile. Although their genders were different, they had more in common than just the way that they were killed. Victim number one, Edward Andrassi, and victim number three, Flo Palillo, both frequently hung around the Roaring Third, seemed to get themselves into trouble more often than not, and likely wouldn't have been missed, easy to prey upon, easy to abduct. But unfortunately, with no promising leads and hardly any evidence, it was soon forgotten, just like the others. However, this time investigators didn't have to wait an entire year before brushing off the dust on this case. On June 5th, 1936, almost six months later, two young boys were headed on their way to go fishing. When they arrived at their fishing spot, they spotted something in the bushes. Yes, folks, you guessed it, more body parts. However, this time, it was only a head, wrapped in a pair of trousers. The next day, police found the body of a man dumped in the bushes directly in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building, cleaned and drained of blood, and missing a head. Coroner Pierce determined the victim was between 20 to 25 years old and had been murdered two days prior. Again, it was determined that the death had been caused by decapitation, However, one main difference between this victim and the others was that he seemed well-nourished, clean-shaven, and dressed in clean, relatively new clothing. This was far different than the typical victim profile that they had previously seen. It was also discovered that the man had six tattoos, a cupid on an anchor, a dove with the names Helen and Paul, a butterfly, a cartoon figure known as Jigs, an arrow through the heart, and the initials WCG. Surely, such distinct tattoos would be recognizable to someone who knew this man. So, they photographed the tattoos and started circulating them around tattoo parlors throughout the country. But when no one recognized them, police proceeded with taking his fingerprints. And, unfortunately, found nothing. Finally, as a last-ditch effort, they decided to make a plaster cast of this man's head and displayed it at the Great Lakes Expo, along with photographs of his tattoos, in hopes that someone would recognize him. More than 100,000 people saw his death mask and his tattoos, but unfortunately, he was never identified and remained victim number four, a.k.a. the tattooed man. That's kind of, like, morbid. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's very outside-of-the-box thinking. Right. But... That's kind of, that's kind of wicked. Yeah. That's kind of insane. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had nothing else to go off of. And at the time, 1930, what other forensic capabilities did they have? Right. 
it's like a step up from uh, just putting the bodies out on display for people to right. identify. Which they did used to do back yeah, in the day. Yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. It's just, uh, it's like the it's next a, level up. It's a tinge less morbid. <laughs> a tinge less. A little bit better. It smells a little bit better, probably. Probably. A little bit less upkeep there. It was at this time that the press began having a field day. The Cleveland Press published an article titled, Hunt for Fiend in Four Decapitations. And inside of the article, it read, Somewhere in the countless byways of the crowded southeast side, detectives believe today is the grisly workshop of a human butcher who in the last 10 months has carved up and decapitated four persons. And thus, the story of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury was born. Journalists were convinced that all of these murders were connected and were done by one single person. But again, police officers believed that it wasn't possible, and they used the fact that the tattooed man wasn't remotely even within the victim profile to deny these claims. Due to the public hysteria created by the media, Elliot Ness met with Sergeant James Hogan to provide some input on these murders. Hogan was part of the divided force that believed that the murders were unrelated. There were no common links in terms of motive between the victims, and, like I said, nothing that they knew about why people committed a murder made sense at the time. But Ness believed that these murders were connected and promised Hogan more support and manpower. On July 22, 1936, the next call came in. A teenage girl came across a decapitated man's body while walking through the woods. The body was again nude, with the head wrapped in a pile of bloody clothing found nearby. The difference with this victim was that it seemed he was killed on the scene as he was found on top of a large pool of blood and wasn't drained and cleaned like the others. The victim appeared to be a 40-year-old man. However, that was pretty much all they could tell at the time. The body was in such an advanced state of decomposition that the head was just a skull by the time they found him. This led the coroner to conclude that the body must have been laying there for about two to three months. However, they were still able to tell that, again, this decapitation was clean and precise. It was at this time that Sergeant Hogan started coming around to the idea that this might be one single killer, admitting that the decapitations showed too many signs of a skilled cut. Almost two months later, on September 10th, 1936, a transient tripped over the upper half of a man's torso while trying to hop a train. An immediate search began alongside the weeds of the tracks. Police found a bloodstained shirt wrapped in newspaper near the bank of the creek, so they began their search there. Police had divers searching the bottom of the creek, and when that didn't work, called the fire rescue squad to drag the bottom of the creek with grappling hooks. They also searched the wood and found a dirty gray hat, which appeared to be bloodstained. They also found a small black bag, which had the label Londy's Smart Shop, Bellevue, Ohio, on it, and a bloodstained shirt wrapped in newspaper. Coroner Pierce reported that victim number six had been in the creek for about two days, was in his 20s, and cause of death, yet again, decapitation, with the head cut off in one clean stroke. The coroner himself even noted that the lack of hesitation marks and disarticulation of the body indicated a strong, confident killer who must have been very familiar with the human anatomy. Again, an identification was never made. They did end up finding the lower half of the torso and parts of both legs, but at the cost of hundreds of spectators showing up to watch the grim spectacle. It was estimated that over 600 people came to watch, and the killer might have even been among them. Despite the police trying to shield the story from the public, 
the press had all they needed to do the job themselves. The Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer all reported almost daily on these killings. At this point, the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run was a household name. The Cleveland News even published a $1,000 reward for the information on the killer. Six brutal killings in one year, and the police had neither clues nor suspects. Giving in to the mounting pressure from Mayor Harold Burton, it was at this time that Elliot Ness decided he needed to become more directly involved with these murders. The police department put detectives Peter Murillo and Martin Zaleski to lead the case. The duo worked tirelessly, going undercover and bringing in any shady character they could find to interview. Meanwhile, a team of individuals, including Coroner Pierce, Reuben Strauss, the pathologist who worked on the previous six victims, County Prosecutor Culleton, Police Chief Matowitz, Lieutenant Cowles, Inspector Joseph Sweeney, Sergeant Hogan, and several other heads of local insane asylums and mental health hospitals, had meetings to discuss information and to profile someone who could be responsible for these morbid killings. The newspapers dubbed this group the Torso Clinic, and it was big news. It's common practice in this day and age for a group of officials to come together to discuss theories and suspects behind crimes, but back then this was unheard of. The Torso Clinic was one of the first examples of our modern day profiling. After a number of hours, the group agreed on what they knew about this killer. The killer was a right-handed man who used a heavy, sharp knife and also worked alone to murder all six victims. This killer, while clearly psychopathic, was probably not obviously insane. There was a disagreement as to whether the killer was a male homosexual, considering the genital mutilation of the corpses, but the other mutilations seemed to have no clear purpose. While they all agreed that the killer had some knowledge of anatomy, the medical experts felt that there was no evidence to establish that the murderer was necessarily a physician. After all, a butcher or a hunter would recognize the anatomy just as well as a surgeon. The murderer was both large and strong, and considering how gruesomely messy it is to decapitate a living person, most likely had some kind of private place where the victims were killed and later cleaned up. The killer selected his victims from the lowest levels of society. However, whether that selection fulfilled some need to eliminate the undesirables of the city, or just that there were so many in ready supply, was not determined. Most experts believed that it was no accident that of the six victims, only two were identified, and those two, both early victims. This indicated that the murderer was getting smarter. Heads and hands were either gone or too decomposed for identification purposes, like he was getting rid of anything that would identify these victims. The evidence concluded that the more recent victims were being selected for a nominee. Another unique characteristic of these crimes was that the tattooed man was placed embarrassingly close to the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Office, almost as though the killer was playing a joke on them, placing them in front of the building of the people who were supposed to guard the city. The killer seemed to be taking unbelievable risks to humiliate the police. In November of that year, Harold Burton was re-elected as mayor. However, Coroner Pierce was replaced by Sam Gerber, with Gerber's fierce dedication to medicine and a degree in law, the community found hope once again that this case would be solved. On February 23, 1937, a man found an upper half of a woman's torso washed up quite like the Lady of the Lake and almost in the same place where the parts of her bodies have been found. Unlike all previous victims, 
the cause of death had not been decapitation, even though the head was cleanly severed from the body. Coroner Gerber reported that the decapitation was done after death. The victim was in her mid-20s, weighing 120 pounds, and had been determined to be dead for four days. Her arms had been removed, and the lower half of her torso had been cut in half, which was not found until it had washed up three months later. Oh. However, her arms, legs, and head were never discovered. Gerber pretty much summarized that whoever the killer was had to have great anatomical skill, and the possibility of the killer being a doctor was looked at more seriously. And it was hot gossip. Ness contacted the local press and asked them to tone down their reports, suggesting that the killer may, at this point, just be killing for show, enjoying all of the attention that he's getting from the daily headlines. They agreed. Until June 6, 1937, when a teenage boy discovered a human skull under the Lorraine-Carnegie Bridge. Next to it was a burlap sack filled with the incomplete skeletal remains of a woman in her 40s. Along with the remains was a newspaper dated June 1936, published a full year before its discovery. They weren't able to find the victim's arms and legs. However, the skull showed signs of considerable dental work, which allowed for the unofficial identification as a prostitute named Rose Wallace. Rose was reported missing by her son 10 months prior. Her son was convinced that the remains belonged to his mother, but both Gerber and Hogan were not as convinced. Detective Marillo, however, firmly believed the victim to be Rose. Due to the treatment of quicklime on her body, though, it was impossible to determine her cause of death. The civil unrest in the city had reached an all-time high, and the National Guard had been called to take control over some labor strikes, ready with tear gas, guns, and clubs. On July 6, 1937, a young guardsman was standing over the Cuyahoga River, just below Kingsbury Run, when he saw what looked like to be human remains floating by on the wake of a tugboat. And, of course, it was an upper portion of a man's torso. Police were called, and over the next several days, they recovered the entire body, except for the head. The victim was a man in his mid to late 30s, approximately 5 foot 8 tall, and weighing about 150 pounds. Coroner Gerber concluded that the body had been in the river for two to three days, and the cause of death was, yet again, decapitation. However, there was something that set this victim apart from all of the rest. The abdomen had been gutted, and all of the internal organs had been removed, including the heart, which had been torn from his chest. Another difference was that even though some of the surgery was very skilled, some of it was pretty sloppy, almost as if the killer had to rush to finish his work. Of course, no identity was ever found, and the man became victim number nine. Detectives began to get special surveillance warrants on any local nurses, physicians, and medical students that showed signs of unusual behavior, or a weakness for sex, drugs, or booze, or any suspicion of homosexuality, which was illegal at that time. Despite these efforts, the trail once again fell cold, and the city of Cleveland received a bit of a cooling period from the Mad Butcher. On April 8th, 1938, a young laborer was on his way to work, walking along the banks of the Cuyahoga River. He spotted what he at first thought was a dead fish, but under closer inspection, turned out to be a lower half of a woman's severed leg. That's a big-ass fish. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Oh, God. Police hoped that it was the result of a boating accident, or even the remnants of an earlier victim. 
But unfortunately, as you could have guessed it, that was not the case. Coroner Gerber announced that the woman's shin was just a few days old, and about a month later, two burlap sacks were hauled out of the river, which contained a woman's nude torso, thighs, and foot. Gerber estimated the woman was between 25 to 30 years old, approximately 5 foot 3 inches tall, and about 120 pounds, with the cause of death, you guessed it, decapitation. And for the first time ever, the victim was detected to have drugs in their system. Police speculated whether the drugs were used to immobilize the victim, or if that she was simply an addict. They hoped finding the arms would shed some more light on the situation, but they were never found. They were able to assess that she had her appendix removed, once had a cesarean birth, and also suffered a laceration on her cervix from either an additional birth or an abortion. But even with all of that information, they weren't able to identify her. And just like the others, the case went cold, and the detectives were all eventually reassigned to other cases, leaving Detective Murillo to continue the search by himself yet again. On August 16, 1938, three scrap collectors were foraging a dump site when they came across the body of a woman, wrapped in a man's blazer, and then wrapped again in an old quilt. The legs and arms were discovered in a makeshift box, wrapped in brown butcher paper, and held together with rubber bands. And surprisingly enough, the head was found a little further away, wrapped in the same fashion. As police combed the area further, they discovered skeletal remains of a second body only yards away and was determined to be a man's. Gerber estimated that the woman had been between 30 to 40 years old, about five foot four, and approximately 120 to 125 pounds. Gerber guessed that she had died sometime between February and April, possibly before the last victim that was found. He also noted that some parts of the body looked as if they had been refrigerated. However, due to the state of decomposition, the cause of death was undetermined. But they could tell that she was dismembered by a large, sharp knife. Police were initially hopeful, since her hands were found, that they could pull fingerprints. But unfortunately, there wasn't a match, and she remained unidentified as victim number 11. The skull and the bones they found were determined to be a man who was between 30 and 40 years old estimated to be between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 8, and between 135 to 150 pounds. Again, the cause of death was undetermined, but he was also dismembered with a large, sharp knife. Again, he wasn't identified and was referred to as victim number 12. There were some doubts that these victims were of the Mad Butcher at all, Although they did show signs of dismemberment and decapitation, there were also enough deviations from the previous MO of the last 10 bodies that made people skeptical. Leaving heads and hands behind was completely uncharacteristic of him. And also, the locations of these bodies were placed far different than his usual dumping grounds, which was either Kingsbury Run or the Cuyahoga River. One interesting note, though, is that both of these bodies were placed, or found rather, in a location that was in plain view of Elliot Ness's office window, almost as if taunting him. However, these bodies were really only found by accident, whereas before, the Mad Butcher made sure that his victims were found out in the open. Later on an anonymous tip, the police department investigated a man who operated an embalming college, but the charges were never brought, and the man quickly moved his business out of town. So mm, take that for what you sketchy. will. Yeah. Whether or not these bodies were related to the previous killings or not didn't matter to the press. 
They had a field day with the findings and heavily criticized Ness for his inability to stop the butcher. It had only been three years, but 12 brutal killings, with not so much as a suspect. The citizens of Cleveland demanded an end to those vicious crimes, and Ness was desperate. He needed to act fast. He then made a judgment call that would forever leave a stain on his otherwise bright and shiny reputation. On August 18, 1938, at 12.40 a.m., merely two days after the discovery of victims number 11 and 12, Ness led a group of 35 police officers and detectives to raid the shantytown of Kingsbury Run. 11 squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks descended on the large cluster of makeshift shacks. With sirens screaming, Ness led his men into the hobo jungle, chasing down and capturing the terrified inhabitants, eventually gathering up 63 men to take them into the police station to be fingerprinted and sent to jail. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were charged with the crime of being homeless. Oh. Yeah. Once Ness had rounded up the population of the shacks, they meticulously searched the place for any signs of the mad butcher. Once they were satisfied that they found all they could, the shacks were then set on fire and burned to the ground, a direct order from Elliot Ness. Unsurprisingly, over the next few days, he was heavily criticized by the press. It was a drastic move and very, very harsh. Critics said the raid would do nothing to solve the murders, which, of course, they were right. However, despite the heavy criticism Ness received, the murders did stop. Whether it was a direct result of the raids or not, the butcher's reign of murder stopped just as suddenly as it had started, and the remainder of the year, no more signs of the butcher were seen. In January of 1939, a letter was delivered to the Cleveland Press, mailed from Los Angeles, California, and was addressed to Chief of Police Modowitz. It read, Chief of Police Modowitz, You can rest easy now, as I have come to sunny California for the winter. I felt bad operating on those people, but science must advance. I shall astound the medical profession, a man with only a DC, which, sidebar, DC stands for Doctor of Chiropractic. What did their lives mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and disease-twisted bodies? Just laboratory guinea pigs found on any public street. No one missed them when I failed. My last case was successful. I now know the feeling of Pasteur, Thoreau, and other pioneers. Right now I have a volunteer who will prove my theory. They call me mad and a butcher, but the truth will out. I have failed but once here. The body was not found and never will be. But the head, minus the features, is buried on Century Boulevard between Western and Crenshaw. I feel it is my duty to dispose of the bodies the way I do. It is God's will not to let them suffer and the letter was signed off with an X. So not wanting to take any chances, the locations mentioned where a supposed head was buried was searched, but no head was ever found. This is the last we hear of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, so to speak. The case is still widely talked about to this day. People speculate, did he really move to California? Or is this simply someone who caught wind of the story and thought it would make a great prank to send a letter pretending to be the killer? It is interesting to theorize, though, that the butcher may have moved out to California in 1938, only for a few years later that the Black Dahlia murder happened. Mm. However, I don't believe that. The Black Dahlia is a completely different case with an almost positive identification of who the killer may be. Not to mention, the Black Dahlia happened in 1947, 
almost 10 years after the killer was said to move to California. Not to mention, she was found with her head in her arms. But that's a different story for another episode. But anyway, this is where I'll leave us. Oh yeah, that's right. Shelby did a two-parter, and now it's time for mine. Yay, (laughs) two-parter, two-parter. Join us next week as we dive back in to discuss the theory of who this killer may be, where he may have been located, and where he may have traveled to. Ooh. Wow, you just knocked my head right off my shoulders. (laughs) Was it one clean stroke? It sure was. Of laughter? Come back again and get lost in the sauce with us. And on that note, uh, bye bye. Bye bye. of her body fart. (laughs) (laughs) The remainder of her body fart? (laughs) She still had farts preserved in her torso?